Right, Sunday night, Sunday, Sunday, funny car, funny time, all right, it's Left Coast Love 2020, Sunday, September 20th, 2020, it's another week, another another week in COVID, although we did get our skies back this week here in Northern California, uh, the smoke broke towards, I want to say the back half of the week. And um, although we can still smell a little bit of what's going on around us, uh, the, the skies have opened up a little bit, so we're back to the heat wave. <laughs> but at least we can go outside, so I was able to uh, get some stuff done out back. Uh, we had pulled in all the furniture during the uh, ash storms, pulled in the furniture and covered up uh, the grill and things in the back, so since... I could get all that out and clean and hose everything off and get our backyard set up again. Uh, the payphone arrived in uh, New York, so uh, that's getting worked on. So we should have that back, I believe, maybe the week after next. So Stacy's super excited about uh, getting the getting the payphone back, and then uh, just another week at work, working remote. Uh, doing research, writing, and uh, trying to keep trying to keep relationships and connections going. So maybe there you go. There's a, there's a little transition for this week. Uh, we can spin over. I, uh, I'm calling this week's episode uh, "Root Down." A uh, couple of couple of things came in the mail this week that involved uh, Root Boy Slim. Uh, but before we start. Uh, <laughs> Uh, most popular Facebook post this week, apparently, for me, would be my dog and my cat. Uh, they do like to keep each other warm on the big bed, and the cat usually gets up first. So this morning, the dog was trying to keep the cat uh, in the bed, so we thought that was super cute. And we could share that again here. We're, we're, only, we're only talking about things that bring us joy or happiness. And uh, right now, our, our animals are, are doing just that. So, let's, let's get to the meat. Let's get to the meat of the show for this week. In the mail this week, to my surprise, what started off uh, as some Facebook chatter with, with my cousin Kim, who's my, uh, the daughter of my uh, father's brother, 
she's uh, she's still in the Albany area and uh, works in, a, in one of the record stores in Albany I don't know how much personal information I can share or shouldn't share so I'll just leave it at that and uh, she was bored uh, it was like a slow day and uh, was IMing me in Facebook and, and, and I, I didn't realize she had worked in, in a record store and I started talking about uh, records that I had had that I had lost but wish I still had and even though I don't have a turntable uh, or I'm not into the vinyl the whole vinyl thing but uh, for me it, just like comic books there's a tactile experience to a record album versus uh, listening to music on a computer or streaming it or on a CD and uh, you know, this was pre-MTV days, so my, my first exposure to music and uh, figuring out what was going on, everything was contained on, on, on the album. That, that, that gave you all the information you were going to get. Um, there were some music magazines. You could, you know, read some interviews or things of that nature, but um, those were all other people's interpretations or ideas. So if you wanted to see what the band or what the artist was going to put in front of you you had to you had to go to the source and while i was growing up in upstate new york uh, we had a lot of uh, small small to mid-sized music venues in albany rensselaer uh, troy saratoga and there seemed to be a lot of different both a mix of local bands and in albany we had Blotto and, and, and a couple other uh, local bands that made it to some level of regional success. Um, I think, oh, I'm trying to think, I think when I was growing up, Buffalo, right? Buffalo, New York. So the Goo Goo Dolls were just coming out. And back then they were not the, <laughs> the Goo Goo Dolls that you, that you probably think of today when I say that name. Um, they were more of a, a punk, a punk band. And over time, again, as most of us have, you know, you mellow with age, you start to get a little more introspective, a little more artistic. Um, obviously, their music had changed. But uh, one of the most uh, fun shows, fun bands, fun events for me was when Root Boy Slim would come through the Capital District. And uh, Root Boy Slim was based out of um, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. Uh, 70s, 80s, and up through, um, I think the last time I saw Root Boy Slim was at Tigers in Clifton Park, and that was, I believe, 19, 1990. Um, if, you're, if you're on the YouTube channel or watching the video, I think I, I have a picture, actually. I still have the shirt from the T-shirt from that, from that show, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, my, I, I was talking to my cousin. I was joking around. I was like, God, you know, if I, I really wish I had the, the Root Boy Slim, uh, the first album that I had gotten. And uh, she, apparently the record store she works at had a copy. And uh, she sent it off in the mail to me. And not just a copy of the record, but like this is the original first copy. He actually had a, a record deal with Warner Brothers back in the day so it's kind of funny uh, to, to see Burbank uh, home of Warner Brother Records so you know around this t you know this is the same label as you know Jackson Brown and 
you know, a lot of other uh, singer-songwriter artist types, if you will. So that that was funny. But the other, the gold for me was this right here, which is the original uh, sleeve that came with the record, and uh, it has all the words to all the songs. And you know, as as a teenager, you know, it was well. First of all, the drinking age was eighteen, so we were sneaking out at sixteen. And, you know, there were picture licenses that Dorman scanned. You could actually, with a pencil eraser and, and a little bit of a little bit of work, uh, convert a license pretty quickly. Good enough to 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 get into one of the places in the capital district. Um, but anyways, uh, Root Boy Slim would always put on a crazy show, and everybody in his band was they were always top notch musicians. Um, and you know, when you're a young guy, you know, and you're out drinking, that's kind of, you know, there's, there's almost a sport to it, if you will, uh, a little foolish if I think back now, but at the time it was very entertaining and Root Boy Slim would come out and basically his first set, he would drink a 12 pack and then they, they would take a break and then they would come back out. He would do a second set and drink a six pack, take a break and come back for the third set and get as far into that last six-pack as he could before he would pass out. Um, there was actually a picture on the record sleeve of him at the end of one of his shows with the band looking on and, and him, pa him passed out. Um, Root did pass away in 1993, but um, the energy and the excitement of and um, this was like in your face like i mean you're five feet away from the guitarist and everybody in the room knows the the words to the songs and now to have the record back in my hands i was uh you know i, I was super touched and there's a note in here from my cousin she's like hey nice to know that that we could still connect and for me of course well music like that is the like the universal glue or the universal kind of universal connector and um, you know I, I, I lost touch a lot you know not really super close so I don't have like the full awareness of everything she's done and everything she's been up to and more recently I'm kind of getting more and more of that information so I do know and here's a poster <laughs> Uh, I was able, oh, God bless the internet. So from the QE2 in Albany, New York, Root Boy Slim and the Sex Change Band, Thursday, July 30th. Doors at 10 p.m. God, weren't those the days? So, yeah, you know, we would, in the younger days, we wouldn't even go out. Like, I could, you know, if doors were at 10, like, we weren't showing up till 11.30. And the shows would go on till 2.30 or 3. And back then, I believe the bars could stay open till 4 o'clock. So it was usually uh, something for a long night. Um, my cousin did work at QE2 for a long time. I know she has a connection with uh, a lot of the bands, the local bands in Albany, and she herself was a member of a number of different groups over, over the years. So um, it was super touching to get uh, the record. Now, I do have the music. We can listen to the music anytime. But it was fun to listen to the music and go back and read the words and then think about uh, and learn a little bit more about Root Boy Slim. So 
Um, he passed away in, in 1993. He was, uh, by all accounts, a very uh, gifted child. His parents were, were well-to-do, and he, as a result, he went to a number of different private schools. He tested very, very high, but uh, I believe today they would call it ADD or, or, or you know, some other bipolar, perhaps. But this was all undiagnosed, and back then you were just a difficult kid, so he was booted from uh, prep school to prep school, although he did finish and actually attended Yale. Um, had a psychotic breakdown, and um, from that point on, struggled most of his life with alcohol and, and different chemical dependencies or abuse cycles, but all the while <coughs> creating and making music and touring and generally, uh, I guess, covering up his, like burying his pain, and all in an effort to make those people around him uh, laugh. His, his music uh, was often maybe kind of sidelined a little bit because it was very satirical. Uh, here's a fun fact. So uh, while when Rupoy was at Yale, he was in the same fraternity as George, George H. Bush. And um, before uh, he became president uh, in, a, in a song called Hey Mr. President, uh, Rupoy uh, had, I guess, seen the future or predicted that he would become president and sent a letter to, uh, this was his open letter to him. And basically it talks about a lot of the same things that are going on today. Um, I'll try to keep it light, but there's a lot of similarities. Um, we were still in the Reagan years, so uh, certain conservative views on homelessness and uh, race relations and things like that. Uh, mirror a lot of what's going on today. There was uh, somewhat of a anti-war kind of, uh, you know, from the Gulf War going on uh, in the, in the in the 90s as well. So uh, a lot of the stuff that that Rupoy would write and sing about actually ended up becoming true. Um, it's just unfortunate uh, that you know he didn't live long enough to to to. Um, to get the treatment that he probably would have gotten today and been able to still be giving us music. Um, it's a funny but a sad story, too. So the, the last time I saw Root Boy Slim was at a club in Clifton Park, New York, called Tigers. I believe it's the upstate concert hall now because the old Tigers uh, got the place next door and they knocked down the wall and expanded it. It became something else. And I, I, I'm pretty sure it's like the Upstate Concert Hall now. Um, but it's still in this kind of strip mall in Clifton Park. Uh, I recently saw, well, no, it was over a year ago, almost two years ago now, uh, Blackberry Smoke uh, there. Uh, pretty nice venue, but back when it was Tigers, it was literally this hole-in-the-wall kind of bar in Clifton Park. And one of, one of the guys I went to high school with, uh, Jimmy, and we were still hanging around in the Capital District, uh, we went to see Root Boy Slim and uh, made it through the first set, watch Root get ripped. And I, I don't remember, it may have been through Matt Eli, perhaps, who might have been, there was something going on, or even Brad Sturman with the sound, or something with the sound equipment or the lighting equipment at Tigers 
that for one reason or another, Jim and I ended up backstage during one of the set breaks and ended up meeting Root and the band and got invited to come hang out in the dressing room. So this was, you know, you know, I'm like 19 years old. This is, this is, or 19, well, by 1990, how old was I? No, I was 20-something at that point. But still, this was like, you know, from upstate New York. I think I'd just gotten out of the service, perhaps, and, and uh, was, was going back to school when we went to see this show. And um, it was just, like, to be backstage, I was a little starstruck. And we're hanging out, you know, we're smoking, we're drinking, and there's this big cooler of beers. And uh, towards the end of the set break, um, Jimmy reaches over and grabs the last beer in the cooler, pops it, starts drinking it, and you could have heard a pin drop. And what we discovered was that that cooler was kind of Root's personal cooler for beer, and everybody else didn't touch it. And... Um, Jim had kind of broken this, you know, unspoken rule. And the next thing you know, we were invited to leave. <laughs> um, people were very upset with us, but um, Tigers was so small and so dark, we, we left the backstage area and just kind of moved back, but we still stayed for the rest of the, the, rest of the show. And true to form, by the time we got to the end of the third set and the crowd had thinned out and the lights were coming up where we would have been discovered to have not left, <coughs> Root had proceeded to pass out on the stage, so the band was attending to Root, and Jim and I were able to um, exit stage left, if you will, and and make it back, uh, make it back to the apartment, uh, no blood, no foul. And uh, we, I have a Budweiser bottle that we had signed by Root before the uh, beer incident and a pair of the Root glasses as well. I don't know that I still have those, but um, still kind of a cool memory of uh, a crazy night out in my younger days with, you know, you know with best friends. And, um, and the band was just great that night. So all of that came from just I aming, you know, it's a connection, right? So it started by I aming my cousin, and next thing you know, she's she's oh well, I'm working at the record store today, and as a goof, I'm say, how about a Root Boy Slim record? And next thing you know, I'm holding it in my hands, and I'm able to tell the story. I found the T-shirt, uh, was wearing that around the house, and. Um, made sure I took the time to reach back and tell her how much I really appreciated uh, her taking the time to not only find it and to send it to me and how much fun I've been having uh, without even a record player. So, you know, I'll play the music on the computer, but uh, again, I'll do it like I did when I was a teenager, grab the record sleeve, follow along with the words, um, and uh, just try to connect with it. So, along the lines of connections, um, again, without getting topical, I'm just going to say for myself, I like enough. I, I can't. I can't turn. Like I can't watch the news between the weather and the fires and COVID and the election and 
supreme like everything I like I just I, I just don't have the patience for it and everybody's yelling at everybody so I, I want to what we did is we went back since we have HBO what was it, HBO Max um, Stacy and I started watching the Sopranos again from season you know the pilot and we're we're still in season one uh, again, I watched it in the day, uh, not religiously, but enough over the years that I know the major story arcs and I'm familiar with the characters, um, but had forgotten a lot of the nuggets or even some of the dialogue, the shots, um, or even now that, you know, this, this was 1999, so we're talking 20, 20 years ago now, there, you know, what the things that have come from this and what brought us to this were all connections too, and connections to things that I also love and go to for comfort right now. And um, with the Sopranos, first of all, killer cast. Um, so many, you know, unfortunately, James Gandolfini's not with us anymore. Um, a couple other uh, of the cast members have passed away. But, you know, at the time, not all of them were known or even known to be actors. And um, at the same time, some of them were super well-known and respected actors. Now, for me, coming back to The Sopranos, a couple of things, a uh, couple of things come to mind. Uh, I noticed immediately, and again, I knew this because of my love for The Rockford Files. And The Rockford Files was one of my grandmother's favorite shows. And I have rediscovered my love of the Rockford Files because a lot, a, a number of uh, the people that worked on the Rockford Files went on to work on other shows that I really love, whether they were writers, directors, or somehow tied to the show. And uh, a piece of trivia that I learned uh, because uh, David Chase, who's the main writer, producer, guy for the Sopranos, creator of the Sopranos, was uh, the main writer for the Rockford Files. And actually, if you go back to the Rockford Files, there's actually an episode in season six, which came out in 1979, called Just a Couple of Guys. And this episode, if you watch it now, is uh, you can see David Chase trying out uh, wood shedding or even drafting out what would become the Soprano. So some of the characters, the, excuse me, the episode takes place in New Jersey. So Jim Rockford had to fly from California to New Jersey for this particular episode. Uh, a lot of the characters that are in the Rockford file episodes their types were expanded and deepened the characters further fleshed out and and went on to be used on the sopranos um and then the other thing too are the easter eggs so now going back and watching so early season one couple of things so this is where tony and carmella are moving his mother uh getting ready to move his mother out of her house she had set the kitchen on fire and run over her friend with the car so it was time for ma uh, to go uh, to uh, assisted living or uh, a senior living place 
And as they're moving her in, there's a group of the residents watching. They're around a TV watching a, a, an episode of The Rockford Files. And in the background, you can hear the theme song from The Rockford Files playing. So I would have not clued into that or even had noticed that back when I watched The Sopranos back in 1999. But now, having refreshed my memory through being, went through all of the Rockford File episodes and have been tagging off of these shows to get to shows like The Sopranos or revisit them again, um, it's fun to see kind of the evolution of some of the, the writers becoming producers and showrunners and, and, and what they were able to do later on. Another one of the Easter eggs is so Michael Imperioli, who plays Christopher, on The Sopranos had a part uh, in Goodfellas and he was Spider in, in Goodfellas who was the kid behind the bar um, at the club in the card room at the club on the corner and he would bring the drinks out to the gangsters while they were playing cards and if you recall uh, there's kind of two major scenes with that character the first one being where the Joe Pesci character uh, asks for a drink and he doesn't get the drink and he and Spider uh, get into kind of a back and forth and he's like calls him a stuttering fool and they start shooting at him and he ends up shooting him in the foot and so uh, they take him away and then later on in the movie they're back playing cards and the Michael Imperioli character's back now his foot's all got a cast and he's still hustling bringing the drinks out to the table and Joe Pesci starts needling him about his his injury. And this time, he kind of stands up to him, and Joe Pesci ends up shooting him dead. <laughs> and, you know, they tell him, well, you know, now you got to dig the hole. But uh, why did I tell that whole story? Well, I think it was either episode three or episode four of uh, season one in The Sopranos, the Michael, Christopher, the Michael Imperioli uh, uh, the actors playing that character, he's in a bakery shop and um, he's getting some pushback from the kid that works behind the counter, which, who, by the way, again, I would not have noticed this back in 1999, but is a very young Machine Gun Kelly, um, pre all the tattoos and stuff. But long story short, in, during that scene, Michael Imperioli takes out a gun and start shooting at the kid behind the counter to make him hurry up and get him his order of pastries and he shoots the kid in the foot and he falls on the floor and he's grabbing his foot and he's like oh my god you shot me in the foot and Christopher turns around as he's walking out of the bakery and you can't really tell if he's looking at the camera or if he's looking back at the guy he just shot and he's like well sometimes that happens so I thought it was kind of funny and it couldn't just be a coincidence that the character who got shot in the foot uh, in Goodfellas that they didn't do a little Easter egg homage, whatever you want to call it, and then have Michael Imperioli then turn around and shoot another character in the foot and kind of play it off as well. This is what happens uh, during that thread. So, uh, and that was just one of, you know, the Easter eggs just kept coming and coming from now 
having rewatched all of these other movies so many times. So uh, it was interesting to see the writers of The Sopranos take advantage of being able to criticize or throw shade on, but do it in such a way because they're doing it through The Sopranos characters um, to kind of push back on some of the criticisms that have been made of the movies like The Godfather, Casino, and Goodfellas. And the preconceived notions that those types of movies and media have given the public. So again, it's very meta because The Sopranos are doing exactly the same thing, but in this particular case, what they're trying to do is show the opposite. So anyways, uh, for a show that's 20 years old, I was... I continue to be impressed by how well it holds up and it, it definitely is worth the rewatch so there are so many little details um, and things that were done in this show that are commonplace now so for example I think on a, one of the earlier podcasts I had talked about uh, lost really kind of cashing in on the whole non tell you know non sequential storytelling so you know we used to we we were trained to receive and process storytelling to follow if you will a linear timeline if you will and although not all stories are told that way enough of them are that that that's typically how humans look to kind of understand things and the sopranos um really did drop in a lot of flashbacks and the dream and the, I, I, I never really realized how much the dream sequence and the surreal uh, kind of fading out and fantasy type sequences were used um, in these episodes of The Sopranos where I, I think maybe we were just trained to remember the gangster stuff but now as I go back and take a look at it uh, where the cliffhangers were placed in each of the episodes struck me as being very Walking Dead, but then I had to remember The Sopranos came before The Walking Dead. And when I say The Walking Dead, I mean the comic book series. The, the way uh, Kirkman uh, structured each issue was amazing, and, and how he was able to do that consistently for 150 to 153 issues still blows my mind from a, from a storytelling perspective. But to give you enough of a story that you feel satisfied for the time that you invested and a cliffhanger that really like so much so that I can't just watch one of these episodes I end up watching like four at a clip and then I have to stop and walk away because I don't want to lose the entire day um, and then as I was getting ready for the podcast tonight to talk about this I was like oh my god this is just like another two of my other favorite shows and again one kind of feeding into the next and the evolution of the writer or the storyteller and for the longest time I you know I thought I loved the show Nash Bridges because it was shot and produced in San Francisco um, at a time right before I moved to the city so it showed San Francisco at a time uh, in the 90s where it, it made it very very attractive it it was uh, coming back 
and offered a lot. So when I came to California, one of the first things I wanted to do was come to, to come to San Francisco and see all these places and go to these different venues that they shot the show at. And what I learned was over time that what I got drawn into more was the, the Carlton Coos, who was the, the producer, and he came out of um, kind of the Hill Street Blues, um, oh God, who's the writer? I can see him with the, with the typewriter. Um, uh, Stephen J. Uh, Stephen J. Kennel, and uh, came out of that camp, if you will, creatively. And he uh, came over, and then they created uh, Nash Bridges. And this Sean Ryan, who ended up becoming the main guy and the showrunner for the show The Shield, was the head writer, quasi-showrunner for Nash Bridges for the last couple of seasons. And since, you know, probably most people aren't familiar, but I'm familiar with all six seasons of <laughs> Nash Bridges. And the last three or four seasons, the, the, the show really took a, I don't want to say a turn, but it, the, the tone and the color really changed a lot from it being the lighthearted kind of buddy cop show <clears throat> with interesting cameos um, to more of a grittier uh, detective, more crime type stories and definitely starting to show the influence uh, that Sean Ryan was bringing, uh, bringing to the series. And when Nash Bridges folded up, right after that was when the show The Shield came out. And I know some people, there's a show uh, around the same time. And, and, and for some reason, like, I just, can't, you know, once I get invested in one of these shows, I can't really, like, do two or three of them. So um, I haven't been through The Wire on HBO, but I know um, a lot of my friends and other, you know, I've read a lot about it. And I know that it, it was also a very strong kind of dramatic groundbreaking series around the same time. But for me... I made the jump from Nash Bridges. I followed Sean Ryan over to The Shield. And that show was just so crazy and over the top. And each season leading, I mean, like, I, at one point I couldn't even figure out how they were going to outdo themselves or how some of the characters were going to get out of things. Um, but, again, if you dig a little deeper, what I started to learn was the TV show The Shield was loosely based upon a rogue group of cops called the Raiders out of Oakland. And that, uh, that group got broken up or discovered or however, you, I, I don't know what the correct description is. Um, but that was all happening in real time during the last, I want to say, year and a half of the production of Nash Bridges. So then it all made sense. So while Sean Ryan was working in San Francisco and, you know, getting the Nash Bridges show out, you know, at the same time, over across the Bay in Oakland, they had the trial of these rogue cops, the Raiders going on or the Riders going on. So what Sean Ryan did was take the same ideas and the same things that were going on in Oakland and just transplanted them and retold a lot of those stories through the TV show The Shield. And um, again, it's like one connection leads to the other. 
and it is kind of a small world to see that all of these things are in one way connected because Stephen J. Cannell was also, I think that goes back to the Rockford Files as well, because he was, he was the David Chase of the Rockford Files, where David Chase was a writer who then became the David Chase of the Sopranos. And at the same time, Stephen J. Cannell created uh, was one of the creators and main writers for the Rockford Files, but he also created, and that led to Nash Bridges and Sean Ryan, and then Sean Ryan to The Shield. So um, I'm excited to, to finish up. Uh, my, my wife and I, she's been following along as well with uh, the rewatch of The Sopranos. Um, back when I was working in Australia, Ireland, and New Zealand, um, I would be gone for three or four weeks, and I'd work from home for a week, and then go back out for three or four weeks. And when you're on the road that much, and you're calling at odd hours, it's real easy to get into a routine of, okay, so, you know, what was the weather today? How was your day at work? And it gets, it gets a little dry. So one of the things that Stacy and I did is we went back and watched Dallas. Yeah, Dallas, the, the TV show, all of it. So every single movie, every there were 16 regular seasons, and then they rebooted it on TNT later on, all the way up through uh, Larry Hagman's death, and they even kept it another year after that on TNT before they folded it. Um, and I, I, to be truthful, I didn't really watch Dallas growing up, during that time, that was the Friday night show your parents were watching. I was familiar with it through pop culture and, you know, who shot JR, knew who the characters were and who the actors and actresses were. But if you asked me what the stories were, I couldn't tell you. But when we went back and started watching all of these shows, again, first of all, holy cow, that show was way off the rails more so than I ever remembered. I can't believe what they actually got away with back in back at that time in the 70s with some of these TV shows. Um, the amount of drinking and um, sex and criminal activity and just general, just general non-safe. Uh, it was just crazy. And but then I had to remember there was only three networks and. Each of these shows had to have a little romance, a little action, a little intrigue. Um, but one thing after watching all 16 seasons, and we watched it over the course of one year, so we compressed all of that. You could really see the trends and, the, and what was going on with that show over time. And a couple of things kind of came through that were a surprise to us. And um, the first and foremost being, um, we didn't realize how many people got their start on the TV show Dallas. So a uh, young Brad Pitt, 16, 17 years old, uh, got caught in the barn. Bobby, he, Bobby, Bobby Ewing had to teach him a lesson about, about, you know, trying to get with his stepdaughter. And this was later on in the season. So uh, he and Pamela had, or was it Pamela? Pamela had broken up and uh, she had left the show. 
And back then she had wanted more money and apparently they, they didn't just write her off the show. They had her in a tragic car accident and then burned her to death. So they were making sure uh, Victoria Principal wasn't coming back. And then they replaced her with uh, Elvis's ex-wife, uh, Priscilla Presley. And she became Bobby Ewing's love interest, except she had a daughter. Well, as Bobby was dating the mother, the daughter spent a lot of time at South Fork, and one of the ranch hands decided that she was attractive. Long story short, anyway, super funny episode. But over time, like we said, everybody loved to hate JR, but he was consistent as a character. So from the very pilot episode to the very last episode of the TNT series, the character of J.R. Ewing never changed. You always knew what you were going to get. You always knew what was going to happen if you got involved or asked him or owed him. And he never, ever changed. And most people didn't realize that. The other thing that became clear is J.R. never killed anybody. But Bobby, the good one, the good son, the handsome son, the one who always did right, he was all over the board. All of the other characters changed, they lied, they were never consistent, they were never true to even the character they were the week before. And truth be told, Bobby Ewing killed eight people over the course of 16 seasons. Yeah, eight people. And these aren't like, like when JR's son got kidnapped, Bobby Ewing got on a plane, flew to California, bought a gun, found the kidnappers, shot and killed them but because he was a ewing he got let off with a warning they took his rifle away from him and told him to go back to texas and to never come back to california um oh by the way this was about the time they were just getting ready to spin off knots landing so there was one of the subplots at that time was introducing the characters that would then go on to start knots landing but anyways i digress but that's the beauty of these shows. Um, and every, you know, my wife would watch a couple episodes, I would watch a couple episodes, and then we would get on the phone and talk about all, like, oh my God, can you believe how much Sue Ellen drank? Like, we all knew that was a joke, right? JR's wife, Sue Ellen, she drank. But, oh my God, like, it was over the top. She would swill out of bottles. She, they had bars in every single room in the house. Even the bedrooms had bars. And other fun things to watch in these old, especially with Dallas, was pre-cell phones. People called and left messages. If they were at a restaurant, the waiter would come out with the phone, right? And the phone had the 500-foot cord on it, and they would put it on the table. You have a call, Mr. Ewing. Or having to pull over and use a pay phone. Um... When Bobby and his wife bought a black market baby. Yeah, again, you would think Bobby and his wife would do the right thing. No, no. They were way shadier than JR. So when Bobby went to pick up his black market baby in, in the little bassinet, just puts it in the passenger seat in the Mercedes 300SL convertible. No seatbelt, no car seat, no safety. Puts it in and drives down this dusty road with rocks and dust flying all around all over my brand new black market baby. It was tragic. Um, the night Sue Allen wrecked her car. The, the foot, the, I can't even believe what they filmed because she was literally out of her mind. It must have been the most fun 
for her to act out those scenes over the years and maybe like try to find a way to get over the top um but that show and reliving all of those episodes that was one of the ways that especially during that time because that went on for almost two two years of the, that kind of travel it would have been really easy to get far apart but J.R. ewing and family gave us a way something other than the the daily stuff for us to get excited to talk about because i couldn't wait to get on the phone like oh my god did and, and try to find out did you make it this far yet because we would always have to test like okay the last thing i remember is they were planning for the party are you did you see the party and she'd be like no and i'm like okay so we'll only talk about up until there but like i said uh especially nowadays when the world is just out of, like it's just so loud for one week to kind of pull back and look at connections to 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 hold a record and listen to music and remember how much fun um, it was to go to shows to go back and watch some of this stuff and think about my grandmother when I look at the Rockford files or uh, where I was when the Sopranos came out in 1999 and forward which was kind of pretty much when I first when I moved to California and then Nash Bridges and the shield so there you go connections uh things you may or may not be may stuff you probably don't don't even know or care about um but i thought it would be fun for us to connect with tonight and as as we kind of do at the end of each sunday uh for anybody that's made it this far again thank you hopefully there's something maybe you learned something or something a little more something to entertain or keep you from being bored while you're at the gym or driving to work um, or working from home. But uh, I appreciate your time and attention and we'll see what's coming up for next Sunday. Thanks and uh, I'll be in touch. Take care.